This is the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. It will be covering a walk from the geographic centre of Australia to the centre of the nation's capital in Canberra to raise awareness of the mental health issues faced by our first responders. We ask a lot of the people in our police, emergency services and all frontline workers. That takes a big toll on them and their families, which is why this walk is happening. These are just everyday people that have to do extraordinary things. These people are just like my dad. Welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. Today's episode, we have Toby Rowellen from Ambulance Tasmania down in Hobart. So, g'day, Toby. G'day. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks very much for coming on the show. So, Toby, you've spent 27 years in Ambulance Tasmania, uh, primarily in the communications section, which is exactly why I wanted to um, have a talk to you about life in that role. It's not somebody that we've had on the podcast so far, and it's something that we actually talk about a lot that uh, I think gets forgotten sometimes about that critical role and and certainly the you know the 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 weight that's on call takers shoulders in that role that ultimately sends everyone else out into the field so yep. I really want to talk about uh, how that's been for you over the over your career and certainly uh, and hear a little bit more about it but if we if we start right back at the start can you tell us how you started out in Ambulance. What took you? What took you in that direction? Uh, that's funny. I, I won't uh, go to it, through it in too much detail because I could talk about it for a, a while. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, in 1995, uh, Paul Keating introduced this uh, program. Uh, I think it was called Work Skills. I can't remember exactly. Um, but basically, it was the government giving money to um, businesses and organisations to basically pay them to employ some extra people so that the unemployment figures looked a bit better. It uh, took more people off uh, of uh, job skills or, or the welfare payments and um, gave you a, a chance to learn some skills. And so Ambulance Tasmania, or it was uh, Tasmanian Ambulance Service back then, uh, they put on four people um, in the communication section um, Basically, they got them from the Commonwealth Employment Service. Um, and so the CS rang me and they said, oh, we've got this position available that you could apply for uh, and it's stuff that you've done before. You've worked, and I had worked very briefly in an office. I'd answered the phone. I'd um, used the computer systems. Um, I'd had uh, done some stuff interacting with patients uh, at a clinic um, it was all very brief, um, but they were like, oh, yeah, you know, you've kind of got most of these things. The only thing you haven't ticked off is you haven't used a radio system before, and I figured, well, that can't be hard, and <laughs> what spoiler alert, it's not. Um, <laughs> and uh, so uh, I thought, oh, yeah, that'll I'll go for that. Um, and then they did this interview, and I felt that I'd done a really bad interview, and I felt like I didn't really sort of know where to start, and I didn't really know what was expected. Uh, but then afterwards, uh, I got one of these four positions and then I discovered what it really was about, which, of course, was taking emergency calls and yeah. uh, 
um, dealing with screaming people over the phone and having the pressure of dispatching ambulances, life-threatening situations and all that. And I think if they that's had the bit actually they left out of the glossy brochure, right? Kind of didn't really explain that's what it would be. <laughs> um, and if they had, I might have had second thoughts. But um, in fact, when um, when I first walked in there and when I started to see what was involved, uh, I never had any doubt that I could do it. I knew there was a lot that I had to learn, and I didn't have any significant medical knowledge, uh, and so there was a lot of the terminology. And the acronyms that I had no idea and took a while to get my head around. And uh, we had four people in that group and two of them dropped out after a couple of months. One of them was uh, unfortunately acutely dyslexic, which is a big problem. Um, yeah. Because when somebody tells you that they're at 612 Main Street and you put 216, yeah. that's not going to go down well. That's a big difference, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, that didn't work. And there was another fellow who was there and uh, he came from a completely different background. Uh, it was a, an older fellow and, and he was also missing an index finger. Um, so he struggled a bit anyway. So after the six months, they assessed us and uh, I was uh, deemed uh, qualified as as able to dispatch and take calls. And then the dramatic part of the story was that uh, we we got sent on a tour around the state. They didn't quite know what to do with us for the last week. We got sent on a tour around the state with one of the other young, uh, newer, wasn't that young, but uh, a newer member of the staff of the comm centre. Um, so there were three of us. Uh, we went around, we visited uh, the stations in the, the north of the state and uh, the northwest and went around the west coast and came back. So at the end of that week, that was the end of my six months, and I had no job. That weekend, on that Sunday, was the Port Arthur Massacre. Oh, wow. And so I was at home, and then I'm listening to the radio and then hearing about this stuff and, uh, and thought, you know, this is this is what I might have been doing. Um, it just happened on that particular day, and I've just skipped it. And uh, so I went in there the next day to say hello and to see how everybody was. And the uh, supervisor of the day, who'd actually been on the previous day and had dealt with the whole situation, just took one look at me and said, you still want to be a comms officer? Yeah. And, uh, That's a and fair I, question. <laughs> it's a fair question after yeah. that. And uh, and I and I just sort of looked and I thought, well, I don't know if I could have dealt with that. But... Um, at the same time, I didn't, uh, I didn't have any second thoughts either. I didn't think, oh, well, no, I don't want to do it. I just thought, well, you know, because you don't do it on your own. Um, so I knew yeah. that even if that had happened to me, there would have been at least a couple of other people who would have helped. And so that week, um, as I say, the first week that I, I knew I was qualified to do the job, but I didn't have a job. And on the Thursday that week, they rang me and they said, can you come in on overtime tomorrow? And uh, Starting on overtime is not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. So I started as a casual that week. Um, the week after the massacre, right. I actually made sure, I took it as a, an opportunity to do some learning and I went to the debriefs about the uh, uh, about the about what had happened and the response that we had. And so I learned quite a bit from that. So, yeah, so that was where that started. And then after a while of being casual, um, then I became permanent. And um, and over the years I've spent... That's uh, a hell of a start to your career, though. Like, I, <laughs> I just 
I'm trying to fa- fathom what the I, I suppose the the atmosphere in the actual job would have been like because that's that's like a you know a, a career rattling event. It's, that, that's, it's, it's full yeah. on for sure, and um, you know, uh, and I'll talk more about that as as I go because it's uh, events yeah. that occur in the role can be transformational in many different ways. And it's very different to the on-road thing. And, of course, there's a lot of talk about vicarious trauma and and stuff like that. But it really brings it home when you talk about a major event because Mm. um, you don't see any of it. You just hear about it all. So then your imagination uh, is available to run riot. Mm. So, you know, and there's been plenty of events over the years. We've had dramatic events in recent years, of course, um, with uh, uh, Hillcrest School, um, and uh, spoiler alert, I was on shift for that one as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, although I wasn't uh, significantly involved in the dispatch, but it has um, dramatically changed over the years um, because uh, one of the things that's occurred, uh, and especially over the last 20 years, is our caseload has gone through the roof. Um, right. And that's one of the things that's impacting everybody involved in emergency services and particularly in an ambulance um, is the demand and the pressure is just increasing all the time. It's just going up. Um, Every step of the way, it's always going up. And it's going up higher than any of the factors that are changing. So ageing population, decreasing availability of GPs, GPs that bulk bill, which, of course, practically disappeared. Um, it used to be, you know, majority bulk billed and you could go yeah. and see a GP and you didn't have to pay 20 years ago. Now, completely the opposite. And then we've got uh, other factors that are going on. Uh, unemployment in Tasmania, which is um, uh, not nearly as good as the rest of the state and particular areas are, are particularly bad. Um, all of those factors, even if you plug them all in, you sort of think that still doesn't quite seem to explain this dramatic rise that we get in the caseload. But what the caseload increase does is it increases the pressure. It increases the demand um, and the workload and the effort. And it's resulted in a big change in where our communication centre sits. We started out, when I started out, we had two people running the whole of Tasmania on a night shift. (laughs) Wow. Um, That's unreal. Yeah, and it, it seems crazy now to think of it. Um, and those two people would take all the triple zero calls and they would do all the dispatch. But including Hobart? Like uh, not- including Hobart, uh, including the whole state, uh, including the two islands, not that oh, they have a God. huge caseload, but um, King and Flinders Island. Um, but we had stations um, on those islands. Uh, or we have volunteer stations on those islands. And we would do all of it. So from about uh, 7 p.m., to uh, 7.30 when day shift arrived, there was two people. And then after a while, uh, they realised that that was not quite enough and it was mostly because we couldn't take breaks adequately. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, you take a break. If you, if you just went to the toilet, there's one person running the state and, yeah. you know, if three calls pop up, um, you know, and we had a yeah. phone system where there were four lines. Um, so only four people could be ringing. Four lines response. for two people. 
yeah, <laughs> four lines for a that two. The maths don't work. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the technology has changed and the numbers have changed. Uh, and I mean, I remember, um, and I've spent over the years, I've spent a, a lot of time acting as team leader as well. I haven't done that as much as recently. Um, but uh, anyway, in back in 2018, when we started to get more call takers um, on uh, uh, allocated and, and working in the communication centre, whose job just was to take the calls, they they didn't do any of the dispatch; they just took calls. Uh, and and so we have dedicated call takers and ded- dedicated dispatchers now. And uh, the first shift, I had three call takers on, and I remember looking around, thinking, looking so many people in the room now. And I thought, what am I going to do with them all? And then, of course, the calls flooded in. And I, after a while, I was thinking to myself, thank goodness they're here. <laughs> because I don't know what I would have done without them. Yeah. Um, uh, you went on night shift. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's how it's been, you know, uh, it's been this dramatic change that I can remember having almost. And we would have nights where there was hardly any calls. Uh, and there were crews who would sit on station and they would never go to a case. And now yeah. that's just, it, you know, it's extremely rare. Yeah, I hear that all the time from all different agencies. And the concerning part about that is uh, we recently talked to Dr. Jackie Drew from uh, the Griffith Uni up in Queensland, who's doing a major research piece into the uh, Queensland Police Service and some of the... Uh, organisation, well, it's the, the research is really broad, but one of the things that she's concluded already mid midpoint in her research is how much harm those organisational factors are doing to the employees that aren't related to the traumatic exposure elements of the job. So it's, mm-hmm. it's quite amazing uh, how harmful those pressures that we're talking about actually are for you know, as you're saying, like caseloads are through the roof, resources are lower uh, f- for the demand that than they've ever been. Yeah. And that pressure gets passed down to that actual operator in the vehicle and that, that officer in the vehicle and, and in whatever setting it is in the organisation. But, yeah, that pressure that's put on those, uh, you know, emergency services workers is having such a detrimental effect. But um, I just, I've got to, I've got to draw this contrast before I go any further because the, the old CES, God, you, you've triggered my mind, the, the Commonwealth Employment Service Office. I remember walking in there around a couple of years before that. I, th- I, I It must have been part of the same scheme because it was a, a traineeship type um, thing that I started after I left high school. And I did... I didn't go into a uh, an emergency services call centre. I went out and worked on a farm as a jackaroo. <laughs> I'm just trying to trying to draw the parallel. If they had have offered me, hey, you can go and work in a call centre with the ambulance service, or go out and uh, round up sheep and <laughs> do do all that sort of stuff, I, I I still would have made the same choice that I made. But uh, yeah, that's quite different paths, probably in the same scheme that we both took uh, in yes. that era. But um, yeah, there you go. I, I, it's funny, yes, because I didn't even know that the job existed. Uh, yeah, I didn't right. even it didn't didn't even occur to me that that was someone's job. Yeah, uh, and no, of course you, you haven't got any emergency services sort of um, history in the family or anything like that that no, took you that no, direction. Nothing. Yeah. No. Um, uh, my father worked uh, in um, uh, structural investigation, so he would uh, he worked in non-destructive testing of. Um, uh, newly built structures or old structures. Yep. So he was testing whether things were 
rusting and falling apart or not, or, or whether they were welded together properly. Uh, and his father worked as a warehouse foreman. Yeah, right. Well, it's a pretty and, different line of work you're in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's quite different. It's not uh, not what you yeah you would expect. But um, I mean, that was the thing uh, that Simone said. Um, the common reaction when you say what your job is, and people go, "Oh, that must be stressful." Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the things I guess I'd like to talk about is because you sit there and you go, "Well." It is, but it isn't. And and so there's all sorts of different things that are stressful and the particular things that everyone thinks, oh, that must be stressful. Well, not every call is someone screaming uh, or dying. Yeah. You know, and in actual fact, the vast majority of calls are not that. Yeah. Um, you know, we've only, it's mighty, it's less than 5% of calls where there's someone either screaming um, hysterically because a, a baby has stopped breathing or or because they're about to give birth or, or um, someone's lying unconscious and not breathing or whatever. Um, and and even then, the majority of callers are not hysterical. Um, but, of mm. course, a lot of people, all they think about is, oh, in a crisis I'll fall to pieces. And so they think they'll be that hysterical person. And, yeah, of right. course, there are people who do fall to pieces and who are hysterical. I remember one case that I had uh, where uh, this fellow had a seizure for the first time and uh, there were two family members with him um, and they'd never seen him have a seizure before and they completely lost their uh, mojo over that and they were completely hysterical. And luckily by that time we had the technology where the address for a landline would pop up on a screen for us. Yep. And if we hadn't had that, I would have struggled to be able to discern what the address was because they screamed it so loudly and it was just a scream rather than words. But I could just discern that they had screamed the address Um, and I could see that on the screen next to me so I thought, oh, well, that's the address. And it took a good five minutes of... And what would happen is both of the two uh, people who were with this fellow... They were both completely hysterical and they took turns screaming on the phone. (laughs) um, So it took five minutes before I could actually get them to slow down and calm down enough to even realise that that's what had happened, Um, to actually realise, oh, someone's had a seizure, that's what's going on. Um, Before that it was just screaming. And it was that yeah, right. bad and that loud that the neighbours called the police and the paramedics uh, <laughs> later on said, why did the police turn up? And I'm like, I didn't know the police went. <laughs> and it was because yeah, right. they thought that there was a domestic, but it was just, you know, but that's <laughs> rare. That's really quite rare. Yeah. And let's face it, if it was every other call, that would make the job a lot harder. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But it's you, not you often that. hear these. You, you hear these references. You know, I go like of you know emergency services people put their lives on the line every day and all this sort of rubbish, which is just not right. And yeah. um, and luckily so, it's not right. But yeah, I think I think the uh, there was some American cartoon or something that was on. But I, I did see this thing about you know summing up police work, and it was it was summed up in a in a line that said it's ninety eight percent boring and two percent terror. <laughs> and I thought, yep, that's about my memory of it. <laughs> Yes. Well, I think it's a little bit different for ambulance, um, fortunately, 
but there are moments for the paramedics where, of course, they have those encounters in um, with violent people. Um, yeah, and that's of yeah, course a tragedy recently up here. Yeah, yes, exactly, and 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 that's just as bad though for the dispatchers at the other end um, mm. when they know that someone uh, is under threat uh, or has been injured because of um, someone that they've encountered. Um, mm out there and that's the that risk that they have and uh, but of course so that's stressful but this is the the thing about um the communications job is that we've got all of the possible things other than actual physical um uh violence from somebody we've got all the other potential risks um you know you've got uh you, you don't need to see something horrible to be affected by it because you get described it um, mm. and then you can visualise it and, of course, you can visualise it far worse than it might even be. And so you have that. And then you have the pressure of having to get someone to a scene when you don't have someone available. And that's what happens more now than used to happen, where you have a case that's come in and you look at the description and you see what it is and, and you don't have anyone to send. Um, so mm. that's stressful, obviously. And then you have the people who, you know, are screaming on the phone uh, or the people who are abusive over the phone, and that's stressful. And then we have uh, the normal things that everybody has, um, and that can be a bad manager, that can be a toxic work colleague um, who doesn't realise the impact they're having or doesn't care about the impact they're having on others by bad behaviour, and, of course, it can be your personal life. Um, if that's a struggle, then going to work in that kind of environment is a struggle. And most people will have that at some point or another, you know, because everyone's going to have something going on in their personal life, whether it might be a, a sick family member or something like that or um, whatever. You know, there's a million different things that it can be. So all of those things are stressful. But one of the things I've realised over the years is that you can have the best, most resilient person who's got the most positive attitude and uh, the, uh, the best way of dealing with difficult situations and they still have a time limit. They still have a point where they will go from being that person new in the role and excited about it and enjoying it. And they might be like that for some time, but eventually it's going to change. Yeah. And it could change for any one of those aforementioned reasons. It could be change because of their own health. They might have something physical happen. You can't predict it. And it will be different for everybody. But everyone has a time limit in that sort of role. No one can do it quite forever. And even those that do end up retiring, having done it for that long, um, they don't end the same person they were because mm. it's an intensity and it's far less possible to do it for your whole career. And, I mean, if you started at 18 and you retired at 65, that's, what, 47 years. And, uh, I mean, just imagine being in that kind of role for 47 years. And, I mean, that's... Yeah. You, imagine no the one... stories you've heard on the over the phone <laughs> over that many years, you know. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I don't even think anyone should do that for that long. I don't think that's healthy. Uh, and I mean, and the other part of this is, is that for the most of us who do night shifts, 
uh, as we know, night shifts are not good for your health physically, and they're not good, mm. and that has a consequent impact on your mental health. Your body is not physically designed, if it's designed, it's evolved to sleep at mm. points so that you recover and you have more energy. It's not supposed to be awake between midnight and 6 a.m. You know, mm. our bodies aren't designed for that. Uh, they're not meant to be awake. But someone You don't see nocturnal awake. animals volunteering to do day shift, do you? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's right. If they get disturbed, it's... they'll run to somewhere else and go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh... it's very true. And there's so many – I agree with you, though. There's so many factors at play in everybody's individual life. And it's one of the things that I've – uh, recently had the time to reflect on where I've, I've been at at different times in my careers. And, um, yeah, it's sort of, there, there is no, um, you know, you can't take away those external influences outside of work and, but just how critical they are in your ability to do your job and, and keep doing your job. That's yep. a, that's a real thing. And I, I think, you know, someone explained it to me once that said, you know, everyone talks about the, you know, the tap dripping into the bucket and the bucket will fill up or putting rocks in a backpack or whatever the analogy is. But I think everyone's either got a different size bucket or a different size backpack. And also the water's going in at a different rate or the, or the rocks, are, you know. The, the differences, uh, everyone is going to be different. And, and it's like, I mean, we talk about trigger events. Um, so you might have a call that is perfectly fine for you to take, but, Joe Bloggs sitting next to you who just lost their grandmother the week before mm. uh, and the call might just be to an elderly lady that's fallen over. Just a routine um, job. Yep. But that might be just that last trigger for that person mm. and they might be, you know, this is too much. But the other thing is it might be that you struggle with a particular type of call but you kind of get through it. But then the accumulation of those calls can also get to people. So, mm. uh, you know, and people can be unlucky. You know, people can receive three cardiac arrest calls um, in short succession. Uh, and it's rare, but yeah. that's really hard. Um, and some people know. are just shit magnets. <laughs> well, this is, this is, I mean, you know, we talk about They're in it every job. And we and we joke about it, um, you know, and yeah. uh, it, it happens. That's, a, that's what happens sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. it? It is. Although, you know, the the caseload we have now, it is. Uh, it's certainly the the inc incredibly busy, insane, mm. nonstop stuff is normal. It's the new normal, and and that's the other part that I think is really impacting on on the role. Um, and making it even less of a career sort of job that you just can't really do for forever because the intensity is too much. No one can manage that intensity for so long. And, yeah. um, and That's I think actually one of the reasons I was really keen to talk to you about uh, this role in particular because I've, I've got a couple of good friends that have been long-term VKG operators, like police radio room operators here in New South Wales, and mm. both of them um, have been impacted by their, that job. Like there's absolutely no doubt about it. And, mm. you know, they've done it a long time, but I, I guess 
I was just wondering to hear it firsthand, you know, what that role is like. Is it like, I've, I guess, thinking back over the years, you know, I've, I've heard radio operators go, you know, ballistic over the radio when they've just, you know, they've hit their limit for the night or whatever. <laughs> it's a particularly busy night shift and something's going wrong in their world. And, you know, they're going, you know, you think, wow, you've got to hold it together, mate, because <laughs> it's a, it's a busy night and you can't, you can't be abusing us for doing our job out here in the field either. And, uh, but, you know, I, I always was a bit sympathetic and particularly like one of them actually was a, on, on the, on the, on the uh, dispatch when a police officer was killed and was involved mm. in that. So the impact that that had on them was pretty, you know, obviously oh. challenging yep. um, to, to be actually dispatching and, and managing that job uh, with that information coming in and, and uh, you know, you can never take away the, you know, the, how hard, how hard that would be like that. I, could, no. I couldn't imagine what that'd be like. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, I, I think one of the reasons that it's difficult uh, in those situations is because of the lack of power that you have. Um, yeah. We, it's a situation where you can never really be completely in control of what's going on because you send people out and and then they deal with that and you no longer have control over it um you also don't have control over what comes in so you can sit there and you go okay i've got these resources and they're here here and here um and i've got these cases waiting here here and here i'm going to do this this and this and you can do that and then next minute five more calls might pop in and completely Mm -hmm. ruin your plan um and so you're constantly having to reevaluate. It's a juggling game, um, and yeah. that's one of the parts of it that I enjoy. I enjoy the juggling game where you're sitting there trying to make the best of of what you got. You've never quite got enough, and but you've always got to try and make the best of of what you've got and where it works. And I mean, sometimes mm. sometimes you get handed. Good cards, you know, a crew will clear from a street and then literally, and this has happened, it's rare, but it happens and it's fun, and someone from the same street calls. And so you go, oh, well, they're in the yeah, same right. street. Bang, they're there. One minute ETA, that's unusual. Yeah. <laughs> and the downside of that is that then it creates an expectation from people um, because then yeah, they're like, right. oh, well, I, I asked for an ambulance and they were there in a minute. Um, yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't happen normally. Yeah. And, of course, the... The, there's a lot of people who expect that there is an ambulance on every street corner waiting for them yeah. to call and uh, all people drive themselves to the nearest ambulance station expecting that them to be sitting there waiting for them and don't even consider yeah. that that ambulance might not be there and in actual fact might not have been there the whole day you know this is and this yeah. is the new normal now is that crews will leave a station particularly like in an, in an outer suburban area they'll leave the station in the morning They'll go to a case and then they don't return. They don't return either or they might return briefly for their break and then they're out again and then they don't return again until after their shift is finished um, and then they're returning to knock off and that's the only time they're at that station. Um, They don't see it, you know, and that's the new normal. And um, so I think that's um, one of the things. But, of course, um, as I say, you know, that intensity and plus the events that occur, they're, they're not the whole story. You've still got 
they're dealing with other colleagues, your own personal life, uh, poor managers if you do have them, and unfortunately paramedics aren't always good managers because they don't learn how to manage people in being paramedics. They learn how to deal with a sick person as a paramedic. Um, and dealing with people can be quite different. And the managing skills people, don't translate into people skills. Yeah. And it's not to say that um, they're not bad people or that they're not good at dealing with people per se because, you know, you develop a, yeah. an empathy uh, or they have an empathy and so they uh, relate well to people and they talk well with people and, and they're generally um, more of a people person than than most. And so they have no trouble communicating. They're good communicators. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily good managers mm. of large groups of people because you're only ever dealing with one person at a time. Even when they go to a scene um, and even when it's a big scene, you can only really deal with one patient at a time because it's only you. You haven't mm. got, you know, eight sets of hands. And so you deal with one person and you might be aware that there are a lot of other patients around. And that's where obviously they have to be smart. So, okay, can I do anything for this person? Or is it more important that I go over to that person there and deal with them? Um, and that's where that changes. But for the dispatcher, for the emergency, well, our title nowadays is emergency medical dispatcher. Um, I was going to ask that because I thought, <laughs> I'm sure you get all sorts of names. And yeah, yeah. I was thinking, what is the official title for that role at the moment? Yeah. <laughs> God, well, it, actually it, it, was, it was communications officer. Um, right. Which uh, uh, for a long time we had, and then um, uh, the American designation was uh, Emergency Medical Dis Dispatcher, um, or EMD for short, of course. And uh, so they um, they recommended changing it, and we recommended changing it because that was the international standard. So, um, and, and we've got emergency call takers, so they're ECTs. Right. And um, and then we've got team leaders and then we've got uh, deployment supervisors who is a paramedic uh, in the room. And we now have uh, secondary triage, which are nurses who are doing what they do in Victoria. So I was going to say, could, could you take a couple of minutes just to describe what that dispatch room is and who's in there and, and what yeah. their role is? Because that's... You know, I think um, most people probably understand that you ring triple O and you say what the problem is, and they're going to send you to either the police, ambos, or fireys, um, yeah, or hang up, yeah. or hang up if you're really rude. But um, yeah, uh, I'm just wondering what what is that? What what does a, a dispatch centre look like? Yeah, so um, so we have, uh, in fact, there's there's multiple more even more roles than what I just went through. So. The primary role is the emergency medical dispatcher. So they're responsible for a region, in our case, uh, a region of the state. So the state is divided into three, um, south, north and northwest. So each dispatcher is responsible for that area. And then we have the team leader who's responsible for uh, looking after what's happening in the room um, and what the dispatchers are doing. And then we have the deployment supervisor who is over the top of them. Uh, and these names have changed over the years, by the way, but we won't go through those changes because that will just confuse the hell out of everyone. <laughs> um, um, and the deployment supervisors also have an overall view, but they're looking more in terms of 
what the paramedics are doing in terms of the cases. So, for instance, if a case comes in in a remote location, um, you know, out in the uh, the bush, then they will start dealing with that rather than the dispatchers themselves, because they might be sending a helicopter um, and uh, um, dealing with it in that in that way. Of course, then we've got the call takers, the emergency call takers who are in the room. We've also got uh, non-emergency patient transport dispatchers, and they also take uh, emergency calls. Uh, we've got uh, aeromedical retrieval, AMR, which is uh, a nurse who is not there 24-7, but they're there in, uh, for, from 7 to 11 p.m., two shifts, and they coordinate our aeromedical transfers um, from hospital to hospital throughout the state and also uh, interstate. Uh, and we have one um, aircraft which is um, contracted out to Royal Flying Doctor Service. We have some helicopters that are based at Hobart, um, and uh, we can send doctors on these um, aircraft. And if there's a more acute um, case if, that needs, you know, higher level of management, we've also, as I said, we've got secondary triage now. Um, so that's nurses and some paramedics as well. They go through a separate training and they have a separate program, and they will. Uh, take up our lower acuity cases and go through them and sometimes they will be able to get rid of them for us um, and right. by that they can call a taxi for people or they can refer them on to a GP and actually say, okay, well, an ambulance is not required. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's something fairly new that's happened over the last couple of years and it's now sort of really starting to kick into gear it's already proven to be quite successful and uh, showing good results. So that's um, uh, that's one of the, the new changes. And that we got that from Victoria, who have a, a huge room of, of people doing that. And, of course, they've got a, a call volume that's um, insane compared to us. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so and in terms of the numbers of people, uh, so at any one time there could be, at most, there might be five call takers, although normally it's three or four. Uh, and on night shifts, sometimes it's two. And sometimes if we're short-staffed, uh, we may only have one. And then um, we will normally have, again, if we're fully staffed, we should have three dispatchers and uh, sometimes it should be four. And normally if we have four dispatchers, then two of them do the south because the south um, is basically the same population as the north and northwest put together. So we've yeah, got, okay. um, I'm not sure what the population says is now, it was um, about 550,000. Last I heard it might be a bit more than that, might be 580,000 for all I know. But anyway, so it's roughly 300,000 in the south. I was going to say the uh, the northwest team would be pretty pretty uh, quiet some days when it's windy over there because everyone in the northwest is just hunkered down trying to stay out of the wind. <laughs> yeah, it can be, be too much uh, happening up there. Uh, yes, they will take offence now um, that, to hear you say that. Um, <laughs> That's all right. They'll get um, Yeah, <laughs> I haven't started on the fireys yet. No, well, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, so um, they um, they can be a little quieter, but. Uh, it's definitely gone up in recent years compared to what it was. Yeah, right. Uh, so that's the, the sort of makeup of the room. Uh, as I say, I've spent um, – when I started, we didn't have call takers. The, the, we were just dispatchers. Um, and initially when we first got the call takers, they weren't even funded 
for the overtime. So if one of them called in sick, we didn't have one. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, that was fun. And it's funny, the manager at the time said, this is a gun position that's going to cut our dispatch times down because, you know, <laughs> you'll have, they'll take the call and you can dispatch before they've even finished taking the call. Yeah. It didn't work out quite as well because um, we had more calls than just one person. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we were like, mm, it's good, but we actually need more than this. And what changed, yeah. uh, and this was quite dramatic several years ago, what changed was when uh, uh, a good manager asked for the data from Telstra who send us the triple zeros. So, you know, you get Telstra and they say which service you require, police, fire, ambulance. And depending on the answer, of course, then they'll forward it to us if they say ambulance. And we always assumed that because the police radio room down here had more staff than us, we thought, well, they must be getting more calls. You know, they've got their Crime Stoppers numbers and their non-urgent line. I mean, we have a non-urgent yeah. line as well, but they had more staff. So we just assumed, oh, well, they must be getting more calls. And then we got the data and we discovered that actually we were wrong. We get 60% of all the triple zeros wow. in Tassie. So they get about oh, 35%, and fire get 3, 3%, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, and there we – that's, that's, my, that's my little thing about the fireys, 3% of the calls. There you go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'll move on from that for the <laughs> – it's got to be said. Uh, yep. Uh, so when we heard that, we just went, we, we were gobsmacked yeah. and we just thought, well, yeah. now we know. We're busy. What a great, like, yeah, I was going to say, what a great analytic to have though. Like when you're sort of trying to grapple with your, your configuration there and then actually work out yep. that. That's yeah. a light bulb and moment. That's a game changer. It was. It really was because that was what generated the extra call taker positions and the demand for them. Mm. Because the other thing is, so what um, we do is we have a protocol, which we didn't have when I started. I wish we did. But we didn't. Um, so we follow a protocol that's been designed in the United States by a company called Priority Dispatch. It's called the Medical Priority Dispatch System. And there's a computer version of it, which is called ProQA. And what that is, is you um, have a script. Uh, and we follow this script for triple zero calls. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, it covers as much as is possible. And so you just follow this script. And this is what makes the part of the job a lot easier than you might think. Um, and you just follow that script and you then, based on the answers you get, you choose a protocol. So we have 33 different protocols which relate from everything from abdominal pain to unconscious, unknown problem and everything in between, chest pain, pregnancy, mm -hmm. car crashes, you name it. Um, and uh, so you choose one of those protocols and you ask the questions on that protocol and you end up with what they call a determinant. And that determinant uh, basically has a code. Um, and so the code might be six delta three, for example. And every agency that uses this system has to go through all of these codes. And there's over a thousand. There's, in fact, I think the latest version is there's more than 1,200. Might even be a lot more than that. Might even be eighteen hundred or something. Now I don't know. Um, the reason that they're so big is for, because of each of the thirty-three protocols, 
um, there's a bunch of possible ends that you get, and some of them have like little extra things as well, like suffixes for them. So the vehicle yeah, crashed right. one has a lot, for example, because there's a little suffix for all the possibilities. So if it's a rollover, there's a separate suffix. If it's two cars head on, it's a separate suffix. If it's a plane crash, there's a separate suffix for that. And so that's why we have, you know, 1,200 plus different codes. But each agency has to determine what their response is to that situation. And so it's not the Americans, they don't tell you, you should be going lights and sirens to this. But what happens is they suggest, you know, these are the higher priorities, and most of them are obvious, um, and these are the lower priorities. And so you just go, okay, well, we're going to send all of these ones, they'll be lights and sirens. These ones just have to be responded to straight away, and these other ones are lower. So what we end up with is a number, and the number is, so it's priority zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We've actually got eight. Um, zero is the worst. Uh, so zero is a cardiac arrest, an unconscious person who may or may not be breathing, or it may be someone who is gasping for breath. Might be, um, just trying to think of some of the other zero, or oh, person on fire is another possibility, uh, drowning, and all things like that. So, uh, and then you have priority ones, which is still lights and sirens. So that's things like chest pain, short sense of breath, um, bleeding uncontrolled, uh, something like that, or a car crash. Uh, And then priority twos, which are not lights and sirens, but we dispatch those straight away. So they can be breathing problems, but a little less acute. Can be chest pain, but not short of breath, depending on the age. And then you go all the way down the scale and you can have things like abdominal pain and it can be a priority four. And the other codes we actually use, um, well, priority five is the lowest one we generally have in the dispatch. And then the other codes we use for um, our transfers. So transfer or a standby case might be a priority eight and transfer might be priority seven. Patient transport's priority six and things like that. That's the protocol system. Uh, and how it ends up. I'm just wondering too, look, with with you as an operator, how does it weigh on you when you're deploying a crew to a job that's, you know, you don't know what the outcome's going to be, i.e., you know, it could be a hostile event or, um, you know, one of those sort of interactions where it's not not a routine job, but how do you manage that sort of I suppose your role in sending a crew to something which, you know, you're not sure about. I mean, this is uh, this is the thing is where it's tricky. One of the things we have is we now have a computer system which is last couple of years we got um, and the benefit of it is that it's actually um, the same system that the police and the fire have down here. So all three right. of us got the same dispatch program. The interfaces and the, the displays are sort of modified for what we want, but the program itself, the basic um, system is the same and they're all yeah, networked right. together. And so what we do is we actually send them cases 
from our dispatch screen. We don't ring them up and say, you need to go to such and such address because this is going on. We actually put in a case and then we send it um, via the computer system to the police radio room. And so it just pops up on their screen and with the information that we've got and vice versa, of course. And so that's one of the changes that has occurred in recent years that's actually uh, given us a a whole new ability to interact with the other agencies um, in a way that we never could before. Uh, It allows us to exchange information much quicker and without tying up phone lines and so on. Um, But it means that they get the information much quicker as well. And so what we can do is, you know, if... uh, if a crew is in distress, then we can let them know all of the information quite a bit quicker than you can just by ringing and explaining. Although often yeah, when right. it's when it's something drastic, we will often ring as well. There are still some level of phone calls that occur, but it's been, been cut in half um, with the way the computer yeah, okay. works, which is really good. But also what's happened is that it's allowed records to be... Uh, amalgamated so that we can see their alerts on what might be a dangerous location or who is uh, a little bit uh, inclined for violence or whatever. So, and there are pitfalls with that, of course, that we've got to be mindful of. But um, the advantage of it is that we now can have more of a warning and say, okay, this has got, um, some potential because we've got this history here and we can see some of that and say, okay, well, this is um, the case. So that's one advantage. And it's not perfect because, of course, um, you know, people move. You can have someone from interstate and they can move and we might have the history. Um, and you can have situations where something happens for the first time and um, or it's reported for the first time and no one knew about what was going on at that particular address until then. Um, So that can happen. But it's, yeah, it's not, uh, I think it's not so much that that's really, I mean, we worry about that, but it's, it's really a rare thing that happens. I think, you know, the things that are stressful, the things that are difficult are just the intensity now is really the biggest thing. And, I mean, I went back several years ago. I went back and I looked at all the the people uh, and I made a little list for myself, which I didn't send to anyone else, of course. Um, but I made a little list and I thought about why have these people left? What happened? And for the first thing that occurred to me was there's a lot more than I sort of had realised. And I thought, wow, oh, we've actually lost quite a few people who for whatever reason, have left the workplace and never returned because they'd reached the bucket full moment. Um, And each reason was different. Um, Some of them were things that no one could have predicted um, that were just unlucky. They got some horrible calls in quick succession or whatever. Some of them were personal reasons. Things happened in their personal life and the combination of that and the job was too much. But some of them were a failure of management 
And by that, I mean they should never have been working in the place. It's a job that not right. everyone can do. Um, some people can do it, but only under a limited sort of in a limited kind of a way. Some people can do the skills that are required, but the mental resilience wasn't there. And there's been cases where people were employed and it was obvious to us working with them in the room that they were not managing, that they were not coping with what the job was demanding. Yeah, right. And management's failure was to not address it sufficiently. And and to, and and their failure was also to re, failure to realise that not everyone can do it, and not everyone that you've put in that spot should be in that spot. At least two of those that I can think of, I knew that they weren't coping, and I knew that if they didn't take action, that the outcome was going to be the negative one, and unfortunately, the negative outcome occurred uh, in both of those cases, and. Uh, one person they were able to find another role for and um, and that person's mental health went back up to a healthy space. Right. The other person never returned to the workplace. Um, and so that's really um, the key thing, I think, for when we employ people, we have to really be careful of what they're going to be able to manage and to monitor it. Um, one of the things that I've done in the last, um, uh, or it's almost six years now, we created a peer support program, uh, right. which we didn't have um, before that. And that was in a response to um, the suicide of a paramedic. Um, and Simone talked about that um, in uh, in her chat with you. And so mm. I... Um, uh, heard that so we, we um, they employed somebody one of the paramedics was employed as a um, mental health and well-being officer and uh, tasked with creating um, a peer support program and and related things and so I actually very early on I messaged her and I said um, what's happening um, let me know I want to be a part of that um, and so then I, um, we went through a process. Um, people were invited to express an interest, um, and they actually went through a, a full employment process to get people to sign up as peer support officers. Um, right. And uh, it was extremely well done. They we followed this model that they have in Queensland, which uh, had been. Um, there for many years, so they brought down a couple of people from Queensland who um, had been ro- running that program and involved with that program for a long time. And uh, uh, and the people who were helped start it up had an experience with it as well because they'd also come from there. Um, because what we had in prior to that, we had the Critical Incident Stress Management System, and that was a whole of emergency services or is a whole of emergency services support program but it is about critical incident stress and so what happens is people go to a major incident and the CISM team will be contacted and they'll be notified and they'll say these people have gone to this incident uh, and then one of the team will ring Um, but the way it works is that it's somebody from another service so if you're a paramedic you will have someone from police or fire ring you 
right. and so on. So it's never someone from your own service. Um, but what they did in Queensland was they have this peer support program, which is all people from the same organisation, and they found that the the people were related to that better. Um, right. Because often when you have a police officer ring, you have to describe what your job is sometimes. Yeah, um, of course. Because, yeah. because they don't relate to it as well. Um, and so there's just a bit of a disconnect sometimes with the CISM program and how it connects for people. And sometimes it works and, and sometimes it's not. And I'm, it's, I'm not going to completely disagree because you still need that support. But the other problem with it is it's only critical incidents that you get a call for. Yeah. And so there was no sort of system or anything for everything else. And because, of course, sometimes it's not. Um, and most of the time it's not the critical incidents that causes people to fall off the wagon. It's everything else. Um, and, in fact, the only time where it's critical incidents is when there's an accumulation of them. And you, you definitely could have one critical incident that does cause someone to fall off the wagon. But it's more likely to have been that that's the last straw. Um, and, of course, everyone is different. Yeah, that's in that right. Place. I think that's it's a pretty um, common uh, storyline, that, isn't it? Yes. The, um, there's just that one, one too many of that type of job and that's it. Yeah, exactly. And so the peer support program, uh, and it took a while to sort of get running and, and there's been a lot of hiccups along the way and there's been interference from um, different parts of the organisation. And, um, and, of course, we've had changes in Chief Executive, which has kind of caused hiccups as well. Um, but um, I think it's now finally starting to sort of get into gear a little bit more um, and uh, and move along. We've had different intakes and there's now, I'm not sure how many of us there are, uh, about 20 of us, you know, 25 uh, around the state. Uh, and there's going to be another induction shortly. Um, but the way, when we first started, the way that they did it was they had one person asking the questions and they had a psychologist evaluating our responses um, in the wow. interview. So it was a very um, comprehensive um, process to actually vet. And then we went through this week where we actually were taken through. Um, it was a really quite fundamental uh, change in how you're thinking about what's going on with you. And it was very much a journey of self-discovery um, because it was about taking people, taking us through what we could take other people through. In other words, mm. getting us to actually share our stories, uh, who we were, find out sort of where we were in our own mental health and space um, and evaluate what was going on with us at the time. And um, it was quite extraordinary, quite amazing um, program. And it's, it's, it was so good that I kind of wish everyone could go through something like that. Um, but that's I was going to say, it's, it's going physically. back to what you just mentioned about that uh, suitability for the role. It's a bit of a shame that I guess it's probably that balance of equal employment laws and 
you know, all of everything that's tied up with being fair to giving people a, an opportunity to do a particular job. But as you said, you know, there's some people that you look at and just go, this is not the job for you and it's yeah. not going to end well if you keep doing it. Uh, it's a bit yeah. of a shame that that can't be front-loaded with things like you're talking about now in, in not just in ambulance communication centres. That's, I think, all emergency services work. Um, yeah, what a, what a shame it isn't front-loaded that way. It it would it would be nice, but it's also um, it's time consuming um, yeah. to go through something like that, um, and you just can't do that for everybody um, as much as it would be nice to. But I mean, that's the thing. Uh, what's really changed um, as a seat is is that. So when I talked at the start about a time limit, I think that time limit's shrinking for a lot of people, um, and for some people, it's shrunk to a really small amount of time and other people that's gone from what might have been a 30-year career and now it's 15 um, mm. and so on. So it's just shrunk because of the way that the job has changed and the intensity. Um, and so I think, you know, whilst we've got a lot of talk about mental health and well-being and, and there's a lot of awareness more about it and there's a lot more services that are kind of being thrown out. Um, uh, you know, one of the issues about this is, and there's a, 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 a famous meme that's gone around which has company says, we want to improve mental health and well-being in the workplace. And the employee response is, well, how about you hire more staff so that we can actually do our jobs? Um, and accomplish things better and, and, and not be under so much pressure. And the response is, oh, no, what about some yoga and we'll get a pizza night in. <laughs> and, you uh, know. Yeah, dodge the issue, yeah. Yeah, and and I feel like this uh, part of me, even though the peer support program uh, has been a good one and I think it's still it's still got, some improvement to go but and I, I certainly think it's been a good thing um and i think it's a good thing that we have the additional um psychologist support and other avenues to go to the fundamental thing that's causing the stress is the caseload and the demand and the pressure yeah right. um and what fixes that is extra staff and yeah. extra resources um, you know, and that's the same for the hospitals and for the nurses in the hospitals and the yeah. emergency department and the doctors. You know, we're getting swamped yeah. um, and that's stressful. Having a psychologist available to call 24-7 doesn't fix that. No. Um, that's going to be the well, case. Actually, going back to Jackie Drew's uh, research, I remember when she was talking about what they'd found in Queensland Police was, I th I'm pretty sure the figure was 86% of all staff were at that point of what what would be classified as burnout. Yeah. And that's one of those organisational pressures that is adding, I think she uh, uh, determined about three times more harm to those individuals than the actual traumatic exposure is. So yeah. you're talking about people operating in a constant state of burnout. They're not going to last very long. No. As you said, like that's that's a fixable problem too, which is this is the frustration that we keep hearing is, you know, you can endure the traumatic elements of a lot of these jobs if you look after the other manageable elements better. But as you said, like they're stretching the band so far that you know it doesn't it doesn't run for that long anymore before it breaks. And no. yeah, what a sad state of affairs. 
Um, and uh, one of the things I've thought about and, and one of the, uh, like when we look for solutions other than extra people uh, in the whole sphere, um, but the other issue is our shift times. So we now, at the moment, we do 12-hour days and 12-hour nights, and we also have a shorter day and a shorter um, afternoon shift that finishes at midnight, and there's some other shifts that are slightly different. Uh, and the paramedics uh, in in Hobart and around the state, some of them are doing 10-14 rotation. Some of them are doing afternoon shifts as well, so they do like an 11-and-a-half-hour afternoon that will start mid-morning and then finish, um, you know, at 10.30 or 11 at night and thereabouts. Yeah. There's, a, there's heaps of different shifts, so, you know, I won't go through them all, but that's sort of roughly what they are. And one of the things that's happening is the paramedics are, are getting sick of the night shifts because they're too much. Um, and so we get people calling in sick for all their night shifts, but they turn up for their days. Um, we get people do their day and their afternoon and then they call in sick for their night shift. And we get people who go to the management and say, well, I'm just going to do day shifts. I don't want to do any nights. And so we're always short on night shifts. Um, And I think what needs to happen in the emergency services sphere is actually go back and have a completely fresh look at the hours that people are working. And because the thing that will change that time frame that is shrinking is to actually go, well, how about, we stop making people work as long as we are. How about we actually say, let's throw out this notion of a 38-hour week because uh, that's a full-time week. Forget about it. Mm. Let's go, okay, what can we manage? Um, and, and of course, employers and governments will be like, oh, but these people then we're paying them to be at home for all this time. Well, What's the preference? How many people do you have on workers' comp at the moment? How much are you paying them? And they're not working at all. Um, And that's what you're getting at the moment with the current system. So they need to sit back and think about the consequences of trying to get people to fit in to a 38-hour week. And, of course, our average is actually a 40-hour week. Um, And uh, our team leaders are working a 42-hour week. And half of the reason they get paid as much as they do is because of the hours, not because of the roles. It's inbuilt overtime. Yeah, right. And, and so, oh, you're getting paid more. Well, you're also working that extra two yeah. hour. That's why you're getting paid a bit more. Yeah. And my personal view is that no one should be working, no one should be rostered for longer than 10 hours. Mm. Um, and we could have, you know, day shifts. We could have afternoon shifts. You could have night shifts that started at nine at night, for example, and then work 10 hours and that day. Or you have night shifts where people come in at 10 and they just work eight hours. Um, yeah. We need to actually start thinking outside the box, um, yeah. forgetting about the notions of a 38-hour week average, but actually just going, okay, what are the shifts that we want? Well, what's the time to recover from working those shifts? before returning to work. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what, wonder what research has been done in that space. Yeah. Um, I, I remember not... when I first joined the police force, it, we used to do eight-hour shifts was a typical roster. It was seven, 7 to 3, 3 to 11, and then 11 to 7 a.m. And yeah. but the trick with that roster was when you're on 
night shift, you did seven nights yeah. of night work. Uh, do and I think that was pretty common in all the emergency services. Yeah, you did seven nights straight of seven p.m. to seven a. Uh, sorry, eleven p.m. to seven a.m. Yeah, hour night I, shifts. I think they still do that in in uh, Taz, the police, and I think nurses have a similar. Yeah, and I think nurses yeah, have a right. similar kind of roster depending on what their employment status is, and of course, fire is. Um, was 10-14s, I think they're 12-12s now, um, and they're trying to get away from the 14-hour nights and obviously yeah. so they should. But I think they, I think we actually should be going much further than that, as I say. I think we should throw away this notion of a 38-hour week because a lot of people are trying to work part-time yeah. now anyway um, yeah. and they're saying, yeah. oh, I, I don't want to work full-time. And yeah. I think we should listen to that and go, well, maybe that's because we shouldn't be talking about it as as full time. Um, yeah. Maybe we should actually just go. Okay, let's let's compensate people for not working full time and encourage them to work less hours. Makes the job more attractive, so that we can actually employ more people, and then we're less likely to have people going off on workers' comp and and going off stressed, and then the whole thing takes you know, 18 months to two years or worse before the situation is even resolved and that whole time that person is being paid, the organisation having to pay for them yeah. when that didn't even need to be like that. There's, there's, a, there's a flip side benefit to that too, isn't there? Because if you're encouraging people to have a like a second sideline role, a, a career or a, a second career, then that makes transition out of the emergency services so much easier when you've already got an inbuilt path obviously in a, in a different line of work on your way out if you if you choose to opt out at any stage. But yeah. you just, you've just reminded me too, I, I'd, I'd be interested on your thoughts on the uh, Fire Rescue New South Wales in some of their city stations now have gone to 24-hour shifts. So, um, yeah, they do a full 24-hour period uh, as a rostered shift, which is um, – yeah, I, I – <laughs> You'd want to be at a quiet station because I couldn't imagine that. Uh, I couldn't imagine that being too sustainable if you copped a rolling rolling run of jobs. Yeah, no, I, I, mean, I, I don't know how they manage it, so I can't comment on uh, you know if if you're fatigued or whatever. I don't I, know how they I, do it. I would, yeah, I would hope that there's some way they manage that. I mean, we have a a system at the moment uh, where so we have some of the branches that are on call in the remote rural areas. So they do oh, four yeah, days. Yeah. They do four days on, four days off. They do eleven and a half hour days. And they're on call at night, and yeah. um, uh, but we have a system where if they get called out and they work six hours or more of that on call period, they're automatically stood yep. down and given a fatigue break of nine hours. Yeah, um, right. And um, so that's how that's currently being managed, and that. That's also fairly new. That's as a result of a union uh, enterprise agreement that was negotiated, right. um, and I'm sure the service don't particularly like it, but um, the reality is for people's safety, um, yeah. you know, you can't have someone work nonstop uh, for 24 hours. No. Um, and, uh, you know, even once you, I mean, someone could potentially work, under our, even under our current system, they could work at 11 and a half hours and then work another six hours, so we're working nearly eighteen hours nonstop. It's um, pushing the boundaries of the health and safety yeah. legislation, isn't it? When you're making people yeah. do that, and, and <laughs> I mean, we already have 
paramedics working 14-hour nights and have done for years, mm. and we have them working 12-hour days, and even that's pretty intense. Um, you know, and it's mm. no wonder people are calling in sick for their fourth shift or whatever it is. Um, and Absolutely. going, well, I, I just need, I, I just can't do that so many times in a row. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we we do have to think out the box and and change the dynamic. Uh, and it yeah. does mean it will cost more, but of course, it's costing a lot now. Um, yeah, I was going to say at what at what expense though? You know, yeah. if you don't do it. Yeah, if you don't, then the yeah. expense is a different type of expense for a different thing. Yeah. Uh, and all you're doing expense. is is harming people um, yeah. if you try to persist. Um, and yeah. I think that's the the fundamental thing. It's uh, it's a lot to ask of people when the intensity is growing. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I, I want to ask you um, about your role and some of those sort of um, more uh, significant events that have popped up and what that's actually meant for you as an operator and your teams. Because I, 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 uh, I'm just going back to a job that I was involved in in the Blue Mountains uh, quite a fair few years ago these days, but uh, I, I still have a vivid memory of sitting at coroner's court with the ambulance dispatcher uh who the the way that job came about it was actually a, a Duke of Edinburgh walk with a couple of school kids and and the young bloke had rung up triple O a couple of times and he was um he, he was heat stressed and dehydrated and getting quite delirious probably listening to the the audio but the way the call was managed was you know pr- it was fairly heavily criticized and obviously that lady um uh, going through coroner's court and having to face the perception of how that call was handled was, you know, fairly significant toll uh, on her, no doubt, personally, and and not not to mention probably left the family with a lot of questions about why it happened that way. But I'm I'm just trying to think, you know, those sort of pressures that people might not think too much about um, in your role can be pretty pivotal moments in your personal, like in your career and, and your, and your personal life if it, if it's detrimental. So what are some, how have you managed some of those? Or could you give us an example of what one of those sort of more critical type events has been and what that actually meant for you as a dispatcher? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, um, there was one case that I had many years ago now where call came in and I've taken the call and it's ended up as being um, a lower priority, not the highest, but not the lowest. Um, so what currently would be called a priority two, it wasn't called that then. And I've thought, oh, I need to get someone of that. And it was quite busy at the time and I didn't actually have anyone available to send. Or if I did send someone, they were going to be coming from a bit further afield. Then they've called back about 15 minutes later and the situation had worsened. And then by that stage, the resources had changed a little bit and I've sent a crew. And then they've arrived on scene um, and it's now a cardiac arrest. And 
and then I've sent additional resources. And then they've transported and, and the patient dies. And so I went back and, and at that time we could only listen back to the last 10 recordings on our system and more than 10 things had occurred on the phone and the radio since the first call. And so I sat there second-guessing myself and thinking, well, what happened on that first call? What Did I miss something? Um, did I forget to ask something? Did I? Did he say something that I didn't hear or didn't listen to? Wasn't sure. And um, and I was and this was like in the middle of the night, and so I was like, you know, what am I going to do? And so and the crews were quite upset because it was a, a younger person that had died, and um, and I was just like, well, what have what have we missed? And um, anyway, so I send an email to the manager and I said, look, this is, this is the call, this is the case, these are the times. Uh, I'm not sure if I asked these questions or, or not or, or what I've said because I couldn't listen back to it. Um, I don't know if I've done something wrong or not uh, or if I've missed something or whatever. And I went home and I cried. I, I got home and burst into tears and, and my partner was actually quite supportive and um, and uh, lovely and and that really made a difference to getting through that part. But I was actually working the next night. So that was my first night shift and, and I had to come back and um, do another night. And I came back in and, and then the message was, can you go and see the boss? And I went in there and the chief executive was there as well. And uh, I sat down and they said, look, got your email and I've listened to the call. Um, and you did ask this question um, and you didn't do anything wrong. They've actually given you the wrong answer to that question. And if they'd answered correct, if they'd answered the question as to what was actually going on, then it would have changed it a little bit. But it probably wouldn't have changed the outcome but we would have felt a bit better about what we'd done. And, but they were also extremely glad that I had responded in that way because I put my hand up to say, hey, I might have made a mistake. Can you check this out? And so it was a real, um, it made me feel a lot better in terms of firstly how I was supported, um, but also how, uh, it made me feel better about my own actions and also about mm. what happened uh, in that I'd tried to do the right thing. Uh, I'd put my hand up to say I might have stuffed up, but in actual fact uh, it came back, no, you didn't stuff up. There was The stuff up was elsewhere. There was a stuff up, but it was not uh, in my hands. Um, so that was um, that made a big difference. And so it's certainly been my experience that it will change how people manage and deal with an incident. And I can easily see that somebody who might have been a little less sure of their manager might not have put their hand up, might not mm. have said, hey, I might have stuffed up. I might, they might have just gone quiet and then... It comes back and there's a coroner's case and the recording gets listened to and then they go, oh, what did so-and-so do there? Why did they do that? And then 
it all comes back as a much more negative experience and it's handled mm. in a much more negative way. Um, and, uh, and I've had instances where managers have responded poorly to things and I've felt so much worse um, because of how they reacted and it could have mm. been handled so much better and so it's one one of the things where we do need to really consider the impact that it has on people when you have some sort of a disciplinary process or an investigation um, and how you phrase things when you're investigating things to be said we believe we have evidence that this is uh, an issue is tantamount to saying we think you're guilty Whereas if you instead say um, this has been brought to our attention and we have a concern and we want to make sure that we're covering all bases is quite a different way of saying it. Um, yeah. So, you know, and so we have a situation where people, if they have done the wrong thing, and it happens, you know, and for whatever reason, people will do, they'll make a decision and sometimes it's because they're fatigued, sometimes it's because there's something else going on, whatever the reason might be, people will make a decision and then they'll go, oh, maybe that was the wrong decision. And how managers respond to that decision and how they respond to those events can be very pivotal and crucial in what yeah, happens for that person's mental health, whether they're supported, whether they are actually uh, assisted through that process or whether they're made to feel guilty. Um, and it can be as simple as the wrong words used. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's no doubt that that interface with, um, you know, trying to deal or navigate in your own self about how you may or may not have handled something yeah, how destructive some of the interactions you can have with the with your employer, be that the boss or the agency, or even even you know media criticism on top of something that um, you know probably didn't go to plan. That mm. that can compound those those stressful elements so much more, can't it? It's, it's, it's funny because, I mean, it's so it's been um, um, such a long time and, um, you know, so many years that I've been doing it and um, so many different events. Um, you know, yes, as I say, I was um, dispatching when Hillcrest occurred. But, you know, for me it wasn't actually difficult and partly because I wasn't directly dealing with it. I think the thing that I that's probably worth mentioning that I found extraordinary was the three people who were dispatching the incident. So the dispatcher for that region, the team leader, and the deployment supervisor. All three of those people were young mothers. Oh wow. So all yeah. three of them have have young children. And so I can't even really imagine what that was like for them in that situation, knowing that they were dealing with 
the lives of so many children. Kids. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's that was the extraordinary thing. And you, But you know what? They all were magnificent. They did not show that stress that you might sit there and imagine. I'm sure that that was afterwards that the adrenaline flattened out and yeah. then they, you know, went, wow, bang, I've just been hit with a sledgehammer emotionally. Yeah. But at the time, while it was going on, their performance was magnificent. Um, yeah. And it's something I won't forget in a hurry. I just can't imagine what it would be like, you know, talking, like dispatching what we've already talked about how, you know, slim some of the resources are at times and you've got an event where six children are died, three are injured at, at a school event. It's, you know, and as you said, you know, the, the main dispatching crew are all, all young mothers themselves. I'd, yeah. Um, yeah. And, of course, uh, the... The call takers who took the calls were um, affected in different ways for it. Um, and one of the things that I realised, so um, we have a suburb in Burnie, which is also in the northwest, um, and it's, you know, um, however far away it is from where that incident occurred, but the suburb is the same name. So we've got a suburb of Hillcrest in Burnie, but the primary school in Devonport is the Hillcrest Primary School. I'm not quite sure how that's happened. Um, local council's wow. probably got some explaining to do. Um, but what I realised was, uh, so when we dispatch uh, for a priority one or a priority zero, we do what is called a general call and we, we radio out and say um, priority one case in wherever suburb, um, crew responding from wherever. So it might be priority one case in Moona, crew responding from Hobart. And I realised that the crews in the northwest who went to Hillcrest or a mine or were on or, you know, they're all aware, obviously. Um, mm. The word itself is going to be something that is mindful, is going to be potentially triggering. Um and when you say Hillcrest, they're not going to think of the suburb in Burnie. They're going to think of that school. Mm. And so what I advise dispatchers to do is when you do a general call is to not call out the suburb's name, but actually mm. just say the town, Burnie, just say Burnie because it's right next to it. It's, it's within that area. Right. It's not wrong to say Burnie. But if you say Hillcrest, the crews are actually going to think first of the school in Devonport yeah. And they're not going to think of Bernie at all. Um, and it's going to be a potential triggering word where they're going to go, oh, don't want to think about that yeah. right now. So I said, just say priority one case in Bernie. Don't say priority one case in Hillcrest because yeah, right. that actually is going to be a potential trigger and also creates confusion. Um, and yeah, of uh, one of our one of our call takers received a call from the primary school for obviously a medical event of some kind who had taken one of the calls on that day. Um, oh. And, and uh, this was months later. Months later, they get a call from the school about this event. Um, they've gone through, they've taken the call, and then they've gone, you know, look, that's, I have to leave the room and take a break because it's yeah. gone 
brought them straight back to that event. Yeah. But this is the interesting thing is that everyone will handle that event in a different way. Everyone will be yeah. in a different zone where it might trigger them or it might not. And and this is the remarkable thing about the human brain and, and individuals is that some people will just sail smoothly along and it might be an old lady that's fallen and, and hurt her hip that is the triggering event. Or it might be that big dramatic event like at Hillcrest. It, you can never pick it. No. No, I've uh, I've had the oh, I suppose the displeasure. I don't know what to call it. I've I've been in circumstance multiple times on my in my time uh, where I've actually worked the last shift with my offsider. They've they've had that moment on me uh, where it's just been you know a fairly routine sort of job in the scheme of things but it's uh, that's been the job and yeah that's happened to me twice mm. um on in the middle of in the middle of a shift yeah yeah that's how it happens hey um look we've we've had a a long chat and i know we're probably wrapping up on a pretty heavy note there but um i really appreciate your uh oh letting us into into the control room letting us into the dispatch center and, and explaining you know, what that's all about and how it works and what it's like to be as an operator. And, you know, all operational people like myself spend so many years uh, with that, you know, radio handset in your hand and taking and receiving uh, information from people like you and never really uh, get too much insight into what that world's like. You're uh, so thank you very much for for sharing sharing that today and um thank you yeah look i always ask our guests for a walk a song for the heart heart walkers and i'm hoping you might have one that you can put on our playlist for us to listen to when we're uh, crunching our way through that 2500 k's in the in the not too distant future yeah so have um, you got a song that you can uh, can give us uh, I do. Uh, it's It's Time by Imagine Dragons. I've never heard of them or that song. Wow. Okay. Well, you're in for a treat. <laughs> should I know them? Um, well, I think you should, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah. used to listen to yeah. Willie Nelson too, so that's probably no real gauge. For oh, that. <laughs> well, that, you, you, you sit condemned. Um, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> No, um, yeah, he's cool. a legend as well. But, uh, yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, uh, there'll be plenty of people that like it. It's, um, you know, and I think it's appropriate because um, it is about the, the time we spend doing this job and we have to um, think about a lot uh, as to we have to be to work very hard on being aware of our own capacity and, you mm. um, and as I said, the, the people that seem invincible are often not at all invincible and uh, mm. um, simply good at putting on a front and you can never tell. Um, and there's, you know, and I could talk more about that. But uh, it's the important, probably the most thing we can do is to get everyone to be more self-aware of where they're at mm with their mental health so that they can actually put their own hand up and say, I need a break or I need to do something else. Because if you 
allow the events to control you, you're much more harmed from it. But if you take control of your own time and say, I've had enough, or I just need a little break, um, you're far more likely to be able to return to it or make the decision to say, I'm going to go and do something else instead Mm. of struggling um, and having... Pushing yourself to breaking point. Yeah, Yeah. instead of getting to breaking point, instead of being in that zone where you've got a world of negative thoughts that you can't stop. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, that's where I uh, landed myself. And I, uh, I I often tell people, you know, like if, if you have that awareness, if you take the time to recognize just how taxing that job that you're doing actually is, and as we've talked about, um, you know, and all your other life factors on top of it, it, it you can hopefully configure yourself to endure it for a, for a healthy time and you don't push yourself to the point where you literally break and then you get it all taken off you, which is the last thing you ever wanted. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's the whole reason you tried to, you know, push, push as hard and as long as you did. So that's wise advice. And, and hopefully one day the uh, organizational cultures will uh, foster that and allow people to freely, uh, freely do that. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, look, thank you very much, Toby, for your time. And um, are you a social media person? Can people get in touch with you if they want to? Or um... Yeah, they can. Um, uh, I mean, I'm on um, Faceplant, um, <laughs> if I may call it that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, although my profile's not really very up-to-date. Um, but right. anyway, yeah, they can, they can reach out. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly anyone who is listening who is in the emergency services space who is sitting there in the struggle zone and isn't sure who to talk to, um, I'd rather they reach out to even me as a stranger, if the, even if I'm a thousand miles away, be better mm. to reach out to me than no one. Yeah, that's right. It's all about um, yeah making that making that. Um, move isn't it to to yeah. help yourself it's uh, it's a tricky one sometimes so look if we can uh if we put the links to your uh, social media contact points in the show notes people can find them there and um yeah look thanks again very much for your time you're welcome thank you thanks for inviting me onto the show oh thanks so much for coming on no worries You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google it.